years ago, we featured an episode in which the datanauts were mining asteroids and wondering how to orchestrate all of our ore harvesting, refinery output, and quality assurance activities. And as Ethan Banks said, we can't keep up, and there's a new resource request every time we turn around. Maybe we suck at mining asteroids. And at the time, we took a good, hard look at Kubernetes to find a system that can handle all the scheduling for us. Today, the datanauts once again revisit the world of container scheduling, but we also loop in serverless or functions as a service or FAS, whatever we're going to call that today. The ideas of that, along with building an incredibly famous project that has literally zero code. Howdy, I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. Ethan Banks is nursing an injury sustained from wrestling jumbo Ethernet frames, so Drew Conry-Murray is subbing in. He is Drew underscore CM on Twitter. And this is the Data Knots Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. All right, we have super famous and awesome Kelsey Hightower on. Hello, welcome to the show again. Who are you? What do you do? And we'll dive and get nerdy really quickly here. Awesome. I'm glad to be back. I'm still doing uh, a little bit of the same, but also venturing into new lands as Kubernetes moves up the stack. So am I. Absolutely. And last time I had a personal issue. I couldn't be on. It, it killed me. And this time Ethan has the same thing, a uh, family you know, event going on. So, Drew, you're just always going to be talking to Kelsey, it seems. I always get to talk to Kelsey. Honor. Kelsey doesn't get the full Data Knots experience. Maybe, maybe show number three. <laughs> we'll have to have a third time. So let's start at the beginning. I uh, wanted to do a little bit of level setting on Kubernetes and then also dive deeper. Actually, before we get into that, let's take another step back. You know, Kelsey, it's been a year and a half since you've been on the show. What are you working on? What, what's been going on in, in your world over the last year and a half? So outside of the container world, I've been doing a lot around things like dialogue flow, you know, the whole Google Assistant where people talk into their phones or oh. home speakers and say, okay, Google, do something. So all of that natural language processing, that stuff is highly interesting to me. So I've been helping some of our customers and engineers get up to speed with like how that stuff works and how to integrate with it. So that's my personal not containers activities. Got it. And and I saw you made some statements maybe maybe a year ago or so about kind of pulling back from a massive swath of conferences and events and kind of pulling the travel back a little bit. How's that working out? Any kind of feedback on on that uh, front? Oh, I failed. I failed. <laughs> <laughs> I failed badly. Uh, I think I think the only thing I've been able to accomplish is keynotes only. And I started to just maybe get rid of the slides. So that takes a little bit of pressure off the preparation. And the live demo. So I guess I'm having a little bit more fun with the conference talks. And uh, definitely there's less of them, but it, it is definitely nowhere near my stated goal. Okay. Well, I, I, I got to say, I've been struggling with a little bit of work-life balance myself. And it's very encouraging to see your photos at kind of STEM-related events with your daughter and the activities that go with that. So from us to you, kudos. I think that's awesome. And then, Drew, why don't you, let's, let's dive into Kubernetes a little bit. Yeah, Kelsey, if you don't mind just giving us kind of a, a quick introduction to Kubernetes, what it does, and why it happens to be so popular in the open source container communities. Yeah, so I think Kubernetes always set out to be this application-specific platform with a declarative API. So anyone that's familiar with containers or Docker, you know, you package these containers and you run them. And then Kubernetes world has always been Let's take a collection of machines and make them as easy to operate as a single machine, right? So that's Kubernetes at a high level. And over the last year or so since, you know, since the show, Kubernetes has really matured, got a lot of our APIs to V1, stateful workloads, batch jobs. We even now have native Spark integration for people doing uh, streaming batch workloads. 
so what you started to see is that the promise of Kubernetes has crystallized and Kubernetes has now become the platform for building other platforms. So that's where you're starting to get into things like OpenShift, which has shipped a PaaS on top of Kubernetes. You're seeing new platforms like serverless offerings that are offering a serverless experience on top of Kubernetes. So now that it's started to stabilize, people are really doing some interesting things with the Kubernetes API. Kubernetes was a project that originally started in Google. They open source it. What's Google's relationship with Kubernetes these days? Yeah, so years ago, Kubernetes was donated to the CNCF. So this is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Mm -hmm. And the goal was that, you know, as a open source project, it also needed an open source or open development model. And we needed to have open governance as well. So this is where the Linux Foundation comes in. We create this new organization, very similar to the Apache organization or foundation. And we provide governance and a technical community to help steer the direction of Kubernetes. And it's also the kind of neutral ground where all of the other vendors, you know, other cloud providers, Amazon, Azure, Alibaba, they all can come in and actually have their voices heard, contribute to the project, and know that there's going to be a governance model that's bigger than just Google, right? So there's so many people that contribute, and I think the donation to CNCF reflects that. What about evolution of Kubernetes or kind of the holistic project since we talked year and a half ago? Were there any major milestones that were hit, or has the architecture changed in any fundamental or even a surprising way throughout that journey? Well, it depends on what view you look at. So from the very beginning, I kind of always saw this vision of, you know, being able to give Kubernetes these declarative configs, and then it will manage my applications. So maybe around year two, two and a half, most of the APIs that we defined back then are still here today, right? So the things that have evolved are around custom resource types. You know, we had a vision for, you know, people building their own extensions inside of Kubernetes. And that got renamed a few times. And the way you extend Kubernetes has been greatly expanded. And Kubernetes has started to leverage some of those extension points itself. So what that brings us to is now we have things like Istio that do networking and traffic shaping and observability. It's now adopted the Kubernetes API, and if you look at it, it is it essentially extends Kubernetes API boundaries to provide everything you need to build a service mesh. So, so it's not part of the core Kubernetes. It's kind of a relationship or an ecosystem project that interacts with it. That's right. So okay. there was a big push to make Kubernetes core small, right? And we all kind of wanted to avoid the, you know, some will say the OpenStack problem where just, <laughs> you know, you, you bloat these projects so much and you have good intentions, but what you end up with is, you know, the project starts to lose its identity. It's hard to keep up and keep the quality bar high. So what Kubernetes has done is like, look, there's a core set of APIs and those APIs are all the things you, ne- you need to have a really great distributed system. Things like RBAC, some of the security controls, the way the API works tooling, command line, APIs, and documentation. And then what you can then do is start to build things like Istio or even a serverless platform that just leverages those APIs and the core feature set of Kubernetes building new experiences on top. So there's sort of a a boundary or a realm that Kubernetes is going to play in, but with these APIs, it can extend into other systems like Istio to do some kind of information exchange or just be able to integrate systems or services? Exactly. So Kubernetes is, if you really look at what Kubernetes is, at its very core, there's the Kubernetes API server. We now call that the API machinery. And the API machinery gives you this declarative API. There's version namespaces of different APIs. So there's a difference between things that are like batch jobs versus apps. 
versus services. And then there's control loops that observe those state changes. So when you say run this particular deployment object with these containers, there's a control loop that goes out and says, well, let me schedule those onto a particular node. Then that node has a control loop that we call the kubelet that looks at that and says, oh, I know how to talk to a container runtime to make sure that those things are running. So when you extend the system with something like Istio, it's the exact same pattern. You design an API for what rate limiting means or traffic shaping or mirroring means. People submit that to Kubernetes, and then your control loop that's responsible for that then goes around and programs the ingress controller or the thing that sits on the edge load balancer and the service proxies that are running in the service mesh. So everything feels first class, even though they're extensions. Okay, that's cool. So how are people using Kubernetes? Is it still like dev test environments, pre-production, or are there actually applications running in production using Kubernetes software? Lots of applications running in production. You know, when I think back to the first KubeCon, maybe three or four years ago, and I remember asking everyone that's running Kubernetes to either raise their hand or come on stage. And it was sad. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone that I know, right? It's like two or three people, maybe four. <laughs> and it's like, wow, <laughs> we got a long way to go. It's lonely up and, here. Yeah. And now when you, uh, you think back to Austin, three or 4,000 people in the audience, and you say, who's running Kubernetes in production? And almost every hand goes up. You now know that we're we're over that, you know, I guess some people refer to it as the hype cycle, people not sure what to do with it. Now you have companies like, um, i trying to think of who we can mention without getting in trouble. Uh, there's, there's tons <laughs> of enterprises. Yeah, there's tons of enterprises. If you look at the KubeCon speaker list or the talks that you see recorded, and then you have companies like GitHub running it in production, right? So you see banks, financial institutions, retailers, all running Kubernetes in production because the patterns are right. We had time to mature the project. So it's definitely a in-production worthy project. Now the question comes down, is it the right abstractions for you? Kelsey, are there still other container schedules out there that are vying for position as the scheduler of choice? Or have we kind of picked a winner? I mean, I know you're, you're at Google, but I think you can answer that kind of holistically. And I'm also kind of curious, you know, if Kubernetes is the leader in that space, kind of where were a few properties of it or, or reasons for that? Yeah, I mean, the whole winner thing sucks, right? Everyone, <laughs> if, if you're not winning, then this whole thing sucks to do that. And, and I think this is very similar to the mirror of the days of like the BSDs versus Linux versus Solaris versus AIX. There was a legit race there for a while. Yeah. And then I think Linux turned the corner, especially when, when cloud really hit. It became like the default OS in the cloud. And then people started to think and say, you know what? What we really need from Unix, Linux pretty much covers, or we can contribute. And that's where the ecosystem is going. It just had the right mechanics for that. And I think Kubernetes is in a similar boat. Kubernetes has all the properties you need for a great ecosystem. It's extendable. People have extended it. It uh, has a great support model, meaning you can go to your favorite vendor of choice and they can have their you know, sauce around Kubernetes and kind of keep it pure so you know it's still Kubernetes. There are other schedulers out there. So I think Nomad offers some value because of Nomad actually operates on things other than just containers. So you can give it binaries, uh, a Java jar file, and its goal is to be a little bit more lightweight has a little bit of simpler primitive sets, and it's really focused on maybe high-performance scheduling. And it's still out there. It's from HashiCorp, so they have a very loyal set of followers, people who use Console, Vault, and Nomad fits really nicely in their ecosystem. 
And I'll be remiss not to mention Mesos, right? So Mesos is still a kind of enterprise-grade platform for building these kind of systems. And when you bring in things like Marathon, uh, Spark, Hadoop, Aurora, a lot of those systems people have been using for a very long time or still are using, but we definitely do see a big trend of Kubernetes because now you see Docker and Mesosphere talking about their Kubernetes support. So that just sends a big signal to the industry that we're starting to see a lot of the vendors or even competing projects have a very strong Kubernetes story. Yeah, and it feels like people kind of have realized that this is a thing, you know, container orchestration is a thing. Let's focus on providing value on top of that versus kind of the religious warfare that goes on at the lower levels. At least that's my take on it from having gone to various events and whatnot that are focused on this space. Yep, I, w- I would totally agree with that. I mean, this is like the battles we had back in the day with uh, VMware versus Zen versus KVM. <laughs> and if you look around now, I think Amazon just switched to KVM as their native hypervisor, and no one cares anymore, right? It's like, we need some VMs. Give me VMs. It's all about the API, the experience, and can you give me what I'm looking for? And I think the container runtime situation is in the similar boat where just run my containers, and give me a great way of extending it and building platforms on top. But we all know there's one war that will never be won, and that's Emacs versus Vim. So I guess that's the only one we have to worry about going forward. As long as they both run in the container, we're fine. (laughs) All right, fair enough. So obviously Kubernetes is getting a lot of uptake, a lot of excitement, a lot of adoption, but uh, now I'm starting to hear some rumbling about folks having some difficulty in terms of scaling outside of a single application Can you sort of chime in on that? Yeah, so this is a problem that I think most people believe that the compute platform will solve. I'm not sure why they believe this, but people believe that, hey, Kubernetes makes it really easy for me to deploy lots of applications, no problem. Just like the cloud made it easy to deploy lots of virtual machines. DNS or service discovery being built in makes it easy to point at another application. But what it doesn't do is make it easy to decide when to point at an application and what happens if you do, right? So what is the API version that you get when you point to application foo? What happens if someone upgrades it? Does it break your client? These are application-level concerns that there's just no way that Kubernetes could solve these. You know, all of these platforms we mentioned earlier, any form of automation may make it easier to deploy all these things and get to the problems faster, right? So, you know, Kubernetes <laughs> is going to solve one problem, right? but it's going to get you to the other problem way faster than you were expecting before. <laughs> and that's where we got to actually realize where the boundaries are here. So when we start to talk about application-level concerns, this is where things like gRPC and protocol buffers offer an opinion on how to do backwards compatibility between servers and clients. And this is where I think a lot of people, now that they're not so concerned about how to get an application on a server, now we can start to turn our attention to how do those applications communicate with each other, and this goes far beyond 12-factor applications. I guess what I'm hearing you say is there are always going to be issues, and maybe some of the hype around Kubernetes got people to think this is going to be the one tool that will solve all my problems, when in fact that's not the case. Yeah, and I think people don't really know what all their problems are. You know, a lot of people... (laughs) They'll find out really fast. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people think all their problems are deploying applications because maybe that's where they're stuck at today, right? How do I repeatedly get these applications deployed? Once you take that away, then the real problems start to reveal themselves. 
right? How do these applications communicate? How do you lock them down? Granular authentication, real visibility and metrics. Those are things that most people just don't have time to get to because we're still celebrating, oh, we deployed the app and it's still running, right? So that's still the high five moment. You know, once we're past that, then we're going to get to the real challenges. Yeah, and even in the infrastructure world, just introducing like all flash arrays as an example really showed us that, okay, it's not a bottleneck at the hardware anymore. It's, you know, the way we're doing queries or the way the, you know, the database is structured. You know, the bottleneck is always somewhere. It just moves around as we advance hardware and software techniques. So that makes sense. Great, great example. I guess kind of a, a coffin nail question here. I'm noticing a lot of public cloud providers are announcing support with Kubernetes, or they say we have a container service, and we realize it's being orchestrated by Kubernetes. And uh, the next question that people come up with is, you know, around lock-in then, and apparently, well, if everyone runs Kubernetes in their public cloud, then you're no longer locked into their cloud, but now you're locked into Kubernetes. So I guess I'll just leave that a little bit open. What's your opinion on all this lock-in conversation? Do you have a strong lean either way? Is there a way to completely avoid lock-in, you know, kind of air quotes around it? as we deploy stuff into anything? No, I mean, here's the thing about this whole lock-in thing. It's, it's so, the problem with lock-in is that most people get no value out of being locked in, right? That's where, that's where it becomes painful. If I locked you into like the best resort with all you can eat food, relaxation, you're not going to complain about being <laughs> locked in. You're going to be like, this is, this is sweet. Yeah, that's a great example, yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of people that are locked into certain decisions that's really what's important here. Most people pick Postgres. Some people say that's not a lock-in decision, but it totally is a lock-in decision. It's, if you use all of the Postgres extensions out there, it's going to be near impossible for you to move to MySQL. Right? So just because something is open or free or you can run it yourself doesn't necessarily mean it's not lock-in. Right? So that means now we've got to ask ourselves, what does lock-in actually mean? So lock-in for most people is, look, I don't want to commit to anything. Give me the most generic thing that I know how to back out of. So if you say, give me a VM, well, of course, now you're locked into whatever kernel you decide to build all of your processes around. And most people in their mind believe they know how to move around different Linux kernels. So if I gave you a Linux kernel on Amazon and I gave you a Linux kernel on Google Cloud, most people tend to know what to do. So they feel that that's less of a form of lock-in or we don't talk about it anymore. Once you start to go up the stack and the, the opinions become heavier, so even if Kubernetes was available everywhere, but Kubernetes has some opinions about how you do things. So if you agree or you accept them, now you are definitely locked into the Kubernetes way of doing things because that's the only way to derive value from it. So I think what's more important here is switching cost. So if you were to adopt Kubernetes how hard will it be to switch in the future? And I think given the declarative nature of Kubernetes and its API, and I've written a tool like this before, where I can look at the Kubernetes API, extract a Docker image, and then deploy that Docker image to something else like App Engine. So the switching costs for Kubernetes, to me, even though it seems like more lock-in, are much lower than uh, raw VM because there's an API deciding what the limitations are. So take one container from one platform and run it on the other. That's really the contract that Kubernetes gives you. And there's logging, there's metrics, of course, but you can get that on a wide variety of platforms.
one thing that stuck out to me is when it comes to applications and services and even infrastructure, when you solve problem A, you tend to reveal problems B, C, D, etc. There's no magic solution. There's always a bottleneck. There's an issue at some layer in the infrastructure, and you just kind of have to be prepared for it. Chris, what's on your mind? I like the kind of mathematical equation that Kelsey did. You know, Kubernetes maintains a small core of APIs. So small core plus other projects that can leverage APIs and can extend the ecosystem equals kind of a great project. You know, it doesn't have to become this bloated, kind of meandering, aimless thing. Kind of like the OSI layer. You got each kind of layer is supposed to act kind of independent one another Uh and each relies on each other, but they, they don't cross each other's streams, or at least they're not supposed to. All right, Kelsey. Well, I I think we've definitely dove deep into some of the architectural decisions and just kind of the thought process behind Kubernetes. I wanted to mentally switch gears a little bit and talk about serverless or functions as a service or FAS. I suppose I'll just say FAS because it's easier in in a few places. But we actually did a few shows, we being the data knots, on serverless or FAS. And that was back when it was still incredibly weird to wrap your head around. At least for me, I was like, what is this thing? So I'll start by reading a tweet that I saw you tweet out. And he said, the number one feature of serverless platforms is the elimination of decisions that have nothing to do with shipping software, which sounded kind of cool. So what's your take on FAS? You know, kind of what's your thought process there? And then I have some questions as an ops person for you. Awesome. So FAS to me is uh, not necessarily serverless. Okay. So I remember back in the day with JBoss where you could just run a piece of Java or code and just write just a little bit and you just say on message, do exactly this. And if you were hooked up to ActiveMQ, the whole framework would do everything it took to route the message to your little snippet of code. And if you thought about it, that whole ESB pattern was a lot like fast, right? You define some event types on a bus and you wrote just a little bit of logic that will be called whenever that event occurred. So that whole abstraction of event-driven programming, this goes back way back, right? We can go back two or three decades and see people talking about this flow-based programming where it's all a bunch of typed events either in the pipeline or, or calling something. In my early sysadmin days, I remember uh, XINETD. Remember that? Like, <laughs> yeah, come on. Yeah. Like, when a request comes into the server, it will call the binary in the config file. And this is how we used to do SFTP, right? Yeah. Something shows up, we wake up the FTP server, and it handles the request and it goes away so we don't waste resources. So, we all know what this pattern is. What we're starting to say with FAS is that now that there's a much better collection of events that are really powerful, when you look at Lambda, for example, the whole S3, Kinesis, all of this rich data that we can get or event types that we can get really makes this model super, super appealing, especially when you talk about it all being fully managed. So I think that's the attraction of FAS these days is that you could do so much more with this model than we could do back then is why it's super appealing. Okay, so FAS, different from serverless in that it's kind of trigger-based or event-based operations that just aren't on-prem, essentially. You're just putting the triggers somewhere else and, I guess, glue it all together with API calls, or am I still off-base? Well, you know, so you're right. So you can actually run a serverless environment yourself on-prem, right? If, you, if that's really what you want it to do, because now you're asking, who is the provider? Hmm. So Amazon is the provider for Lambda. Google is the provider for Google Cloud Functions. And if you had a sophisticated team 
there's nothing stopping you for being the provider for your organization. Now, there are some roles to serverless, right? We're not talking private cloud here where people waste a bunch of time. If you were going to, you know what I mean? If you're going to yeah, be yeah. a serverless provider, then I need a great API and an entry point that says, here is my code, and I'm just going to map events to it, and you're not going to burden me with DNS and how many servers and a chargeback model. None of that applies in the serverless world, and this is where I think we got to make sure we're clear. Serverless provides you know, this whole abstraction around the entire infrastructure with the billing model to match. And this is why I think a lot of people struggle with the ideas of serverless because they believe that, hey, I could do that too. But the minute you start talking about disk space and what servers and what network and what the IP is, you've already lost what people were going for. Because hmm. I know, and I've seen this a few places where it's kind of like ops either needs to ask or should be asking, you know, what would I do when the server goes away? And I saw, I think maybe you were even talking about platform as a service plus managed services equals serverless. So for me, it's just all, it's not quite gelling as exactly how that impacts ops, but I certainly, I can certainly see the point that if we're not, for, for us, I suppose, if we're not talking the infrastructure piece, the, the question like, okay, what do I do now becomes quite relevant. And there's certainly some fear attached to that. Like, what do I do if all the things that I know how to do are gone? I guess comment around that. Am I getting close to understanding serverless? Because yeah, I, so there is it's a, like a very running away from me. You know, no, there's a very emotional <laughs> thing when you start to talk about jobs going away, right? Imagine that person that was loading the punch cards, and they were talking about magnetic disk. That person was like, "Nah, man, these, these magnetic <laughs> discs aren't gonna work. They rotate too slow." People make mistakes. Touche, touche. Yep. Yeah, so gone. <laughs> gone so in the in this infrastructure world as a great if you're a great infrastructure engineer your goal has always been or should have been to make people do the least amount of work possible to get their application running if i check in a piece of code and you have a pipeline in place i should get a ton of value just from the action of checking in code right not opening tickets not waiting for a change window so that's the value of infrastructure when done correctly. Infrastructure falls apart when it becomes a burden, right? Like if you're driving down the freeway and someone puts a 12-foot ramp in your lane, you're like, you're not going to jump the ramp. That's, <laughs> that's, that, that is not what you expected from the infrastructure, right? People get pissed off in traffic jams. No one expects a toll to be out of place. That stuff is prohibiting the flow of traffic. So when a developer goes to write a piece of code, they just want to use the infrastructure as a means to an end. They don't want to just get out and take pictures of the freeway. No one goes on the freeway to do sightseeing. It's not the main attraction. That's so on the infrastructure side, now there's, there's a relevant case. Okay, So I think if you go to a cloud provider, let's say your company's all bought in on this public cloud. Remember we talked about lock-in earlier. So what value are you going to get out of a public cloud provider if you're still doing the same amount of work that you were doing in your own data center? So most people look at that and say, there's not a lot of leverage in that. So when you look at a serverless offering, I would say things like RDS count, where there's a fully managed MySQL setup, where all you do is you know throw your data at it and pay your bill for the most part, and then the responsibility lies on them. But let's say you're on-prem and you haven't bought into this shared infrastructure model, then your infrastructure team now has a new target. 
they could actually, if they do it right with the right tools, they could provide this serverless interface to their business to say, look, we're not going to be dealing with containers. We're not going to be dealing with Puppet or Chef. What we're going to do is have a set of patterns that if you follow kind of our limitations, because there's going to be limitations, then we can give you this much value. And I think that's what it comes down to. Who is the provider? Is it you? Does your company want to be in that business? And if not, what leverage do you get out of using a platform like that? So this is just a side note comment, but um, this this conversation, sort of existential crisis about what is my role going to be in this new world, has been going on in the networking industry for a couple of years now with software defined networking, and is my job going to go away because I'm not, you know, hand configuring a CLI anymore? Uh, it's just kind of funny to hear it now, so starting to be expressed in the developer world as well as the ops world. Uh, that's just a side note. But Kelsey, to continue the conversation, um, so you mentioned AWS Lambda, you mentioned Google Cloud Functions, Azure also has function, Azure Functions. Does this mean that the availability of these services means serverless or functions as a service is, is going mainstream now? Or is it still sort of, are we still in the sort of Wild West early days? So here's where I'm trying to be pragmatic. So I, I use all of these things. You know, I actually try to run my own workload, so I'm not just out here guessing and just saying stuff. So when I look at these platforms, some things make more sense than others. If I have a long-running service and it's going to be hammered with requests, I can't deal with cold start times. So that's a, that's a problem of today, right? That right. may go away in the future. But today, it is a real problem that if I don't do anything for a while, I may have to wait until my function wakes up uh, to do its thing. And there are just some cases where you don't want that cold start problem. Yeah, I was reading a blog that said something you might end up waiting like as much as 10 seconds for a function to spin up. And in some business cases, that would be absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, and that's where we start to get into the trust situation. So now back to the human part, I got to be able to control my own availability. And if you tell me that it could be between one to 10 seconds before it responds, that may not work for a major retailer that has a customer waiting to check out on the site. Right. Yeah, because you've got to use the longest amount of time as the assumption. Because you, you never know. Like, you, you can't just assume it's going to be the quickest amount of time. So that makes sense. Right. But we got to make sure we're not using that not to progress, right? So yeah. that cold start problem will be fixed. Guaranteed, it will be fixed. So in the meanwhile, what we got to do is ask ourselves, where did things belong? So we know every organization is not going to rewrite every app that they have to be event-driven functions. We we already seen the problems with just going from monolith to microservices. Uh-huh. And that hasn't necessarily been successful. So we got to be very pragmatic about this stuff. So I think there's just going to be yet another set of compute offerings that will add a lot of value to those who can take advantage of it. I think you've made really good points, Kelsey. And it also really makes me want to talk about this project that you put up on GitHub called No Code. And it had, well, you know, no code in it. So, I mean, what, what was the motivation? Because, you know, a thousand snark points, but I don't necessarily think that was why you're going after it. And at the same time, I saw the project had like, the last time I checked, had 16,000 stars and thousands of forks and was all over the news. Like I saw it on Hacker News and stuff. Like what the heck is this thing and why is it so crazy? Uh, honestly, I was in the airport coming home from San Jose and uh, I had this idea in my head about like, I am just so tired of all of these projects. Like they're just, it's just too much. There's something new all the time. And I remember when I think I started to get a little bit more wisdom about these tools. 
And one thing I used to be proud about is if, if I was ever able to not write a piece of code and still solve the problem, I felt really good about my decision making. Right? I felt that I you know, looked for things that were already out there, was able to leverage those things and save me and the company time. And uh, I think people have forgotten the benefits of not writing code, right? Most people get an idea and they just start hammering away. And there's a time and place for that. Don't get me wrong. Mm, yeah. But I think it's just too much. I, I've seen people go out and build a new thing. I was like, dude, you just invented DNS. And they're like, <laughs> like oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I could have, let me show you DNS. You can do this. And then it's like a thing. So no code. And what I did, instead of making it just a tweet, I had a little bit of time before boarding my flight. So I said, you know what, let me just make a GitHub project just to really show people how sometimes we overhype some things where we actually say, look, here's how you use it. Look how amazing it is. And the reason why I think it became popular because it resonates with people. I think people are a little bit burnt out on all the solutions, all the things. And people are just like, look, I just need to run my app. Show yeah. me that. I feel you because sometimes I feel like browsing through these projects is like going through the grocery store. Like, oh, just deploy celery to talk to carrot and get a tomato. And I'm like, you know, there's so many weird, you know, it's just hard to, you know, even just today as we've been talking, it's like, oh, this vendor, they have these seven things and they all work together. And I, I can definitely feel the, the kind of the project fatigue. Uh, plus, it's I think the hardest point these days is naming your project. I think that's literally the hardest part. No doubt, because all these things already exist. And and I think there's 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 also a gift in the cursor. So the gift is the languages and frameworks and libraries have gotten so good that a person working by themselves can build a very useful tool that can be adopted by millions of people almost overnight. We've seen it time and time again with JavaScript frameworks, um, just little tools, even like Docker in its early beginnings. You can do so much with so little now. So it's almost like making songs at this point. You can make a song. It may not be good, but you totally can make a song about anything you want. And we're getting to that level of expression with these tools that we have that anything that comes to mind, you can almost ship it in a weekend. I love the, the, the quotes around no one drives on the interstate to take pictures. You know, you're, you're not you're not driving on the interstate to take photos and admire the road. I guess unless you're driving on the Golden Gate Bridge, that, that's a thing. But you're just trying to get where you're going. And so the, whatever we can do to make that easier is pretty much going to be a preferred method. Although the idea of a 12-foot ramp in the middle of the highway sounds kind of cool in a certain way. Or at least I'd, I'd like to watch that. Uh, True, what's on your mind? I'm not driving with you, Chris, just <laughs> just to make sure that's clear. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, what came away for me is... Sorry, let me start there again. Uh, my big takeaway is that um, serverless or functions as a service, whatever you want to call it, it's definitely the new hotness. But as we learned with microservices architectures, some apps are going to work at this environment. Some might not. And there's definitely going to be costs to moving to this model. So don't just you know pick the cool new thing first. Pick the right app, the right business case, and then go into it with your eyes wide open. All right. So now that we've left the grocery store of open source project names, let's talk a little bit about breaking some silos and I guess just making sure that those that are in the ops field that are listening to the show kind of get a little bit of TLC as, as the world turns here a bit. I suppose the first place I would start would be, I guess, kind of picking apart your thoughts, Kelsey, on, 
you know, the introduction of containers and other abstractions like, you know, serverless and FAS and, and orchestrators like Kubernetes. How do you feel that they're changing the interactions between those that are in traditional ops versus those that are kind of in traditional dev? Because obviously these skills have historically been like as an operation engineer, my skills have really been like system engineering, understanding platforms and tools, and I guess to a lesser extent, people skills. So I'm just kind of curious how these things are all affecting my job and maybe my career. So if you think about the broader ops community, we did a great job. The goal was to automate yourself out of a job. And the job of everyone creating their own infrastructure from scratch is no longer necessary when people are sharing their infrastructure. So this could be as simple as sharing a uh, chef cookbook, or it could be to the extreme of someone sharing a cloud or a cloud provider. So I think as operations folks, we're now entering that world where we're producing these really usable libraries. Remember, this has always been something that developers struggle with. You mm-hmm. know, once you adopt a language like Python or Golang, where there's a huge standard library, your job as a developer is not creating TLS and TCP libraries. Your job is to take those well-known libraries and build some business value, right? Sure. So, yep, yep. yep you don't make a programming language before you start. So, okay, developers have gone through that for a very long time, and they still produce value. Now, on the operations side, when you look at things like Let's Encrypt, that's your fellow colleagues saying, we understand how to do certificate management so well that we're going to put an API on top of it, make it free, and produce a bunch of tools so we can get rid of wasting time doing certificate management. Great. That's what great operations people do. Instead of everyone doing it for every company that they work at, we can all use Let's Encrypt. That's the net win. Operations folks are showing their value and then putting an API on top of it so other people can use it. That's that's fair. No, I was just going to say the uh, the comment of we're always trying to automate ourselves out of a job, and now we're being successful with that really resonated because I, I had a stint where I was doing nine months out of a company and a year and a half at a company, like pretty short periods of time. And people would question, like, why do you keep changing jobs so much? I I keep getting bored. I automate everything, and then I have nothing to do. It's kind of interesting to hear you bring that up because I haven't thought about that in probably eight or ten years. But you're 100% right. That traditionally is what we're trying to do, right? (laughs) Just sit around. Everything's automated. Everything's kind of running itself, kind of Maytag man, and then move on. So it just kind of struck me when you said that. Definitely, yeah. Like when you see – and I moved around a lot in my career. I think my average job stint is one and a half to two years because you're right. Once you – get the patterns down and you really get good at executing, which involves great people skills to get them to see the vision and then back it up with execution. You're right. It may be time to go after two years because you got them to where they needed to be at that time. So this notion though of automating yourself out of a job, it also seems like all these new frameworks and and methodologies that are being created also may lead to new jobs. I'm thinking like even with serverless, if, if an application goes wrong for some reason and, and part of it is connected to, uh, a function as a service, there needs to be some telemetry that has to be examined. I've got to figure out what part of the application stack isn't working. That's that's a skill set that somebody can that could be very valuable to an organization when it comes to troubleshooting and figure out. Okay, generally it's supposed to work like this, but it didn't. Why? That's why you're always going to have a job in ops. That's why <laughs> ops never goes because, away. Well, the thing is, think about it. Like deploying stuff to a server is pretty boring, right? Okay, it's work, but that's not the kind of work you want. What you want to do, and I, and I think this is going to happen, 
the operational mindset is what you described. It's not deploying servers. That's just where we've been deployed and that's kind of where the problems were for various reasons. But now you're going to start to have ops people and you already see it now. The number of operation-minded folks, like people like Dave Cheney, for example, he has a very operational background, but he contributes to the Golang Standard Library. I've contributed to the Golang Standard Library, added basic off support. So things... Things like the run times and how well they run, all of that system knowledge you have about how Go should interact with the Linux kernel, for example. A lot of those use cases came from the Docker team and people trying to build container runtimes and having issues with the way Go routines interact with the threads of a kernel and how they make syscalls. So in order to work at that level, you need systems knowledge, right? right? And then you talked about distributed tracing and doing live debugging, right? Once we're in these serverless platforms, live debugging is going to become an art of, I have all of these logs, I have these traces, what should be happening? And then when you break it down, that operational mindset is really going to serve you well when you start to say, look at this, I, I found the problem. They're running an older version of Node.js that does this weird thing with the new library. Here's what has to be fixed, old library, or we get them to upgrade the runtime. And that's where your ops value is going to come in. You know, there's this notion of when you do automation, the idea is after you've sort of taken care of the, the grunt work and, and automated it, you can then provide higher level value to the business. Is that an example of that principle? Yep. So one thing that ops people maybe overlook is that we also have the ability to jump into the security realm. Mm, that there's always a job in security. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, because it's a practice, right? You can't just say the right. app is now secure. <laughs> right. So, well, I mean, you the, could say that, but you, know, <laughs> you say that, then you're going to be on the news, right? You're going to be on the news like, oh, that's, honey, is that where you work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our security was done. It's where I worked. <laughs> well, no, that's a good example. I was actually, I was trying, what I was trying to do before we recorded the show was, was go in and find like an example that I felt like kind of resonated with a way that, the serverless FAS, you know, that kind of world interacted with traditional ops. And the, the one example that I found I thought was pretty good was, you know, it's an Azure example, but I think it could work anywhere, was, you know, they, hey, they have these security center playbooks that tie into Azure functions. And the example workflow was like, oh, there's the security center that detects some kind of RDP brute force attack. And rather than just alerting you, like, you know, pager goes off was the traditional saying, but, you know, phone goes off, whatever. You have a function defined where it, it calls that over the API and says, when this happens, what am I supposed to do? And the function then executes it off the playbook and says, well, I'm going to you know, shut down that IP or you know, turn off already, you know, whatever it is that it needs to do. And it's the function that executes it for you based on a set of rules. And again, that re literally resonated because I used to work jobs where I got calls a lot at three in the morning or four in the morning. And uh, that to me was like the killer piece of work that I just hated. I absolutely hate being on call to like fix things that I have nothing to do with. <laughs> and this seems like a great way, you know, like I didn't cause this problem. It's not my application. I'm just responsible for keeping it online. So that was a cool way to create like a quick little function that they can handle it for you. Kind of like Uber automation. I don't know if that resonates with you, Kelsey, as like a, a legit example, but it was something that I found that I thought was kind of cool. It is. And this is why I think People, and you know, myself included, as system administrators, remember, the system is allowed to evolve that we administrate. It's, it's not always going to be a Linux server that we administrate. So I had a recent example 
where I talked about running what we call Kubernetes Emission Controllers. So this is a way when someone submits an object or a deployment or a workload to Kubernetes, that there will be a webhook that can validate whether that workload should run or not. And if you think about your sysadmin hat, this is where we use things like a bash script or a cron job or, you know, we've, we've been building these utilities our whole careers. And we've been building them in a way that was appropriate for the system we've been administrating. So that's the bash shell and cron. But when you start to think about administrating a cloud platform or a serverless platform, then your interface changes. Now, instead of running these things in bin, user local bin, we can run these same bits of logic. And it's perfect because it's right up our alley. We build these little quick and dirty scripts now become serverless functions that react to a specific event. And now we have much better semantics on what the cause is, what am I responding to, and what should happen next. And think about it. You can build thousands of those uh, based on the business needs. Yeah, and I can also see a market where you're sharing ideas, you know, because it's just little bits of code. And you're right, because it got triggered, you know that the, the logic path necessary to get there occurred. So you kind of know root cause, or at least it's not just there's an issue, and then you have as, as human like diving through the syslogs or whatever to find it. You know it triggered whatever the event is that required, you know, that trigger to actually go off. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, system administrators that embrace this new system and learn to administrate it are going to find that they're going to be able to do things at a whole nother level because they're not going to worry about copying scripts around from servers and the limitations of bash or, you know, standard in, standard out. Now you're actually going to have semantics that say, you know what, I can manage a global system by myself and be fairly confident in the behavior of that system. I would set up a, a function that if like any business or executive person scans in their badge for the data center, it, it immediately like makes everyone look busy, you know, set like the boss key, <laughs> like a global boss key. <laughs> I can see all sorts of ways. You know, I'm just thinking about not getting caught while playing games or something like that, That's but there's right. also real business value too. <laughs> Switch the browser Fair tab enough. to something business to, to your email instead of Warcraft. Well, excellent. I feel so serverless and high functioning as a service and whatever pun I can think of. Kelsey, I wanted to thank you very much for joining us. And, you know, for those that want to engage with you further on the grand internets, where can they find you? If you want to communicate with me, I keep my Twitter direct messages open. So I'm at Kelsey Hightower on Twitter. I'm open to one-on-one direct tweets about, you know, technology and what it means to be a good person in the world. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Software and how to be a good person. That's a nice combo. Well, they come in pairs. But that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow at Chris Wall on Twitter, or my blog is wallnetwork.com. And don't forget our red shirt Data Nuts crew member, Drew Conry Murray, who's at Drew underscore CM on Twitter and blogging at packapushers.net. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Nuts talking about containers, conferences, certifications, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage, you name it, it's there. Go listen to it. It's all really good. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindle spin, and your cables be cleanly managed.